We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Romans. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you're going to notice that something changes as we go from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 2. In chapter 1, Paul was describing the people who were sinning with pronouns they and them. And this is not a modern discussion. This is just an observation of grammar that he was describing they, them, those people. He was speaking about the people who were sinning. In chapter two, though, the pronouns change to you and your, meaning he is now not speaking about people, but he is speaking to people. And so the focus shifts from chapter 1 to chapter 2 from the the common sins of pagan unbelievers to sins that are more common among moral religious people. And so if you want to think about our New Testament reading, if you want to think about the story of the prodigal son and those two sons, chapter 1 of Romans is dealing with sins that are more common to a younger brother type of person. Whereas the sins of chapter 2 are the kinds of sins we might see that older brother committing. And so thinking about the fact that we are all here this morning in worship, I think it is fair to assume that many, maybe not all of us, but many of us would find ourselves more likely to be guilty of the kinds of sins the older brother was guilty of. The kinds of sins that Paul is speaking about here in chapter 2. And so let us listen this morning with open hearts, ready to be corrected by God's Word as the Spirit would move. Let us come to the text this morning. It is Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Romans 2, 1 through 5, as we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. Here's what it says. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for working through the Apostle Paul and inspiring his words. We thank you, Spirit, for preserving these words throughout the generations that we have them before us today. We thank you, God, that you still work through your word today. And so, Lord, please use me in spite of my own sins and weaknesses 
that I would faithfully proclaim your word. And we pray for the word to go forth in the power of the spirit in answer to our prayers and that you would give us open ears to hear that our hearts and minds would be open to receive your word. Oh, God, may the word fall on us like fresh rain and so bring life to us. Oh, God, as you draw us closer to you in Jesus name, we pray. Amen. Looking at Romans 2, 1 through 5 this morning, we are going to look at three pairs, three sets of two this morning. We're going to first define two terms that are used in this passage a lot so we know what Paul's talking about. Then we are going to look at two faulty assumptions that help us to see where this sin comes from. And finally, consider two possible responses to this word. And so if you'd like, you can follow along in the outline provided in the bulletin for you. So we're going to start by defining these two terms. These two terms that get used a whole lot in this short passage are judge and practice. I feel like we're on a legal show. Judge and practice. Those are the words. And so we hear them in verses 1 and 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So again, those words just keep on coming up in this passage. We've got to know what they're talking about. So in this passage, to judge does not mean to evaluate someone's behavior. It does not mean to discern if someone is acting wrongly. Yes, those are a kind of moral judgment, but not what he's talking about here. So imagine you're a middle school student. For some of you, that will be easier than others. And imagine one of your classmates in middle school just shouts angrily at your teacher, just yells at your teacher. You are allowed to make the moral observation that, ooh, that was wrong. You are not supposed to just sit there and think to yourself, who am I to say If such actions are wrong, I would not want to judge anyone. No, you are allowed to make moral evaluations like, ooh, that was wrong. That's that's allowed. You can do that. That is not what Paul means by judge. What he means here is to pass judgment. That's how verse 1 translates it. For in passing judgment on another. That means you have put yourself in the seat of judge. And you do not believe your behavior is subject to judgment because you are the judge. Going back to middle school, to pass judgment would be to look at your classmates' clothing and think, Ugh, can you believe what they are wearing? I would never wear anything like that. I would look so dumb like they do. Okay? Now, some of you may have a lot of difficulty thinking back to middle school or thinking ahead to middle school. So instead, hear hear what Tim Keller writes about this distinction. He writes this. To pass judgment is not simply saying that is wrong. To pass judgment is to believe that others are worthy of God's judgment while you are not. And so the person that Paul has in mind in these verses is a person who would have been hearing the end of chapter 1 and just like, yes, yes, and just cheering. 
Like, yes, Paul, those are such bad people. And God's going to judge them so good and I'm so glad I'm not like them. You go get them, God. Okay. Well, in one sense, we should be glad that God will judge. You're allowed to feel glad. The Psalms, the prophets, long for the day when wickedness will be judged. But we cannot long for judgment without realizing we also will be judged. That we are not above being judged. And so there's a difference between aligning yourself as someone on God's side as a believer, like we share in a victory, versus aligning yourself by God's side when He judges. God doesn't invite us up into the judge seat and go, you want to bang the gavel? No, that's not what God does. But we do sit in the courtroom of God's justice and we affirm, yes, God, your judgments are just. And we recognize that we also have sinned and must be judged in some way. And so that's what judge means in this passage. It is passing judgment. So what does practice mean? Well, to practice something means more than you've just done it before. In seminary, I had a professor who, the very last day of our class, he said, no one's ever going to teach you to do this in seminary, so we're going to practice it. And he had us all stand up and practice baptizing people down as if we were in a pool. It was super awkward. I had to take this guy and just like lean him down. And again, we're not in water, so he's heavy. All right. And same with me. Like I was heavy. And so technically I have practiced dunking someone in baptism, but I do not make a practice of dunking people in baptism. We do a little bit of sprinkles here. Okay. We do not dunk. And so while I have practiced it, I do not practice it. And that's the distinction here, that to practice something is to accept it as something you do. It is a pattern of your behavior. This is how I act. And so Paul writes that the people he has in mind are not just those who have occasionally done these things, but have made a practice of these same things. And the same things here are likely that long list of sins we looked at last week in verses 29 through 31. We saw 21 different vices in there. And that there are people who have made a practice of those sins. That they have become habitual for them. And they continue to do them without trying to repent, without wanting to change. And they know that what they are doing is wrong but they continue practicing them while judging others for doing the same thing. Now, why would people do that? How do we explain that people not only do what they know is wrong, but then judge other people for doing those same wrongs that they do? I hope you can hear that there's some inconsistency, some hypocrisy there. So why do people do that? Well, Paul shows with two questions in verses 3 and then 4 that there are two faulty assumptions that people can make that lead to us judging other people for things we do ourselves. The first question is in verse 3. It says this, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, 
that you will escape the judgment of God. And so the faulty assumption here is that somehow someone is going to escape the judgment of God. When I hear about escaping God's judgment, my mind immediately goes to that show, Cops. And all the police videos, those body cam videos, dash cam videos where you're watching and the police pull over the suspect and they're just standing there and, just, boom, and then they run. And they just, they think they're going to get away. And it's entertaining because, you know, like, you're not getting away. Like, you're surrounded by armed officers. It's just, it's not happening. There's no way you are going to escape the consequences of your actions. Similarly, Paul warns us He's like, don't think you are going to escape God's judgment. I don't know how we think we will escape God's judgment. I don't know if we're going to try to put like an angel costume on and just kind of blend in in the background. Like, don't mind me, God. I'm just an angel right here. I don't know if we think it's the whole like, I just need to be faster than you, not faster than the bear. And like, God will just be busy judging other people while we get away. I don't know exactly why people think they will escape God's judgment. But if God is going to judge, we will not escape. And we know that we will not escape God's judgment because we cannot even escape our own judgment. We cannot escape our own judgment. Just as how Kelly used that mirror with the kids, Paul writes in verse 1, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. How does that work? Well, one of the most famous examples in the last hundred years was given by Francis Schaeffer, and he described, imagine that you live your life with an invisible tape recorder around your neck. And imagine that instead of recording all the time, because that would be a lot of tape to sort through, imagine it only started recording when you said something like, That person should do this. Or you ought to do that. Or you shouldn't be doing that. And so it only ever recorded things like should and ought, those moral judgments that we make. And now imagine it's judgment day and you come before the throne of God and God doesn't even have to speak. He just takes that tape recorder off your neck, sets it down and hits play. If the statements that we said were the standard of whether or not we could stand in judgment, we would all fail. Not a single one of us lives up to what we profess to be the moral standard. And if we cannot escape our own judgment, how will we ever escape God's judgment? And so Paul is like, guys, you're not escaping That was the first faulty assumption. The second one is in verse 4. He writes, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so this faulty assumption is that God will kindly let our sins slide. We presume that since God has not punished us yet, He's just going to continue being kind and not punish us in the future. Now, if I may say so, I think this assumption is far more common than I'm going to escape God's judgment. 
And the reason I feel that way is because how most people react to our Old Testament reading. We hear that story of God striking Uzzah down, and typically our response is, whoa, God, like, that seems pretty strict. Why'd you do that? It wasn't even that bad. Like, you'll strike him down for that, but all these other people do stuff and you don't strike them down? We assume that God must be patient. That He's required to delay judgment. When, in fact, God chooses to delay judgment out of His kindness. And so, instead of thinking, man, why would you do that to Uzzah? We should think, Thank you, God, for not doing that more often. We can wrongly think that God's patience and judgment will mean He's never going to judge. But this patience is meant to give us time to repent, to recognize our wrongs. This is why parents and teachers often give children warnings first. We give children opportunities to change their behavior before receiving the punishment they deserve. But if children use that time to persist in their sin, parents and teachers will eventually have to discipline them. And the same goes for God. The time for patience and forbearance will eventually end, and He will bring judgment on sin. But this still seems like some weird assumptions. Like, who would do this? Who would think they could escape God's judgment? Why would they think God wouldn't judge them? Why would people presume these things? Well, remember, Paul is speaking primarily to people who consider themselves good, moral people. In his context, these were primarily Jews who saw themselves as having a preferred status in God's eyes. And in one sense, the Jews absolutely have a preferred status. They received God's covenant promises. They have the Old Testament scriptures, but they wrongly assumed because we have those things, God's like going to go easy on us. We'll be fine. He's going to judge all those real bad people over there, but not us. Do you know that Uzzah was a Jew? And he was struck down? That just because you are associated with God's people does not mean you somehow escape God's judgment. And so Paul warns them, you too will face judgment for your sin. And so then we're left, okay, well, I'm a little nervous. What do I do with this warning? How am I supposed to respond to this word of correction? And there are two possible responses. The first one is in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That would be the wrong response. It is to harden your heart to God's word of warning and refuse to see that you are subject to his judgment. So what hardens a person's heart? As strange as it sounds, one of the things that can harden a person's heart most is their own perceived sense of goodness. That if we think we are good, we have a hard time listening to correction. Think about that older son in the New Testament reading. He was proud. I obeyed you every day. Never broke a command. He couldn't hear the correction of his father. 
He was so busy comparing his perceived goodness to his brother's sin that he could not hear the loving correction inviting him to celebrate. He couldn't see he now was lost. Similarly, people who see themselves today as good people can fail to see that they are lost. And do you know what? This happens most often in churches. That I see myself as a good person because I attend worship. I put money in the offering plate. I avoid these major sins and I'm pretty nice to people. And since we feel so good, we often look down on others and think, man, God is going to judge them, but I'm glad I'm one of the good ones who is not going to be judged. When we are focused on our own perceived goodness, we don't repent of sins we know that we commit because we don't commit them as often as other people do. When we harden our hearts, we think that, you know what? I bet I could stand in front of my own tape recorder. I'm proud of how good I've been. That if I were judge, I'd let myself go. But what Paul says is what we are actually doing is storing up God's wrath against us because we have been resisting His rebuke instead of repenting of our sin. And so Paul warns people, you will be judged. So, that's the bad response. What is the good response then? Well, like last week, we, we don't find the good response in here. Paul's in what we would call the bad news section. And so in order to find good news, you almost have to take the bad news and like flip it to find what is supposed to be the good news. And so if the bad response is a hard, impenitent heart that does not listen to correction, well, then the right response is to have a soft, repentant heart that sees our own sin and cries out to God for mercy to be saved. Now, to receive God's mercy, you have to think you actually need it. And to think you need God's mercy, you must think you deserve judgment for your sins. Hear this quote from Jonathan Edwards, the most famous sermon that has been given in the history of America. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Here's what he asks. He says, O oh, sinner, can you give any reason why, since you have risen from your bed this morning, God has not stricken you dead? Sermons were a little different back then, I guess. Um, in other words, are you any better than Uzzah? Are you any different does God have the right, based on your sins, to strike you dead today? Do you believe that you have sinned against God and deserve His judgment? See, only when we see we deserve God's judgment for our sins will we recognize, you know what? I'm not good enough. I need some other way to get out of God's judgment. I need mercy. And God gives us that mercy in Christ. For Jesus came and took God's judgment upon Himself. He was struck down so that we could be forgiven. See, the only way we can see God's judgment as a good and comforting thing is if we know that the sins we have committed can be judged without us being destroyed. And the only way to withstand God's judgment is to take shelter in Christ 
knowing that He has been judged for all of our sins and that we then can be covered in His righteousness so that on the day of judgment, we don't have to say, God, I've been this good. We say, God, I am covered in Christ. And God will see us and say, you are righteous in Christ. Not because you have done anything, but I see Christ in you. You see, apart from Jesus, we stand condemned. Apart from Jesus, we should fear God's judgment. But if we trust in Christ, we then can look forward to God's judgment and give thanks. We can give thanks that our sins have been judged and that the sins of others will be judged. And instead of passing judgment on one another, we can leave it to God to judge and warn others and invite them that there is plenty of shelter in Christ until that day of wrath comes. Let us pray. Oh God, may we not feel that we have any special treatment by virtue of anything we have done, but may we see the only hope is in Christ. It is in trusting in Him, recognizing that it is only in His blood on the cross that we can be forgiven, that we cannot withstand Your judgment in ourselves. Lord, I pray that You would seal this Word in us. Help us to believe it. I pray, Lord, that You would work it into our hearts and minds so that we would understand its implications and that You would help us to refuse to pass judgment on others and instead point them to the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.